Thanks. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Let's take our Bibles this morning. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 this morning. <clears throat> And let's begin reading from verse 11 this morning. And we'll have a word of prayer. Genesis 6 and verse 11. It says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come, up, come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Let's open with the word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for this chance, this opportunity this morning uh, to gather around your word. We pray that you would bless our time together. Lord, we pray that you would just undertake as we consider uh, Noah's Ark this morning. Lord, just um, instruct us and teach us through your word. I pray that you would empower me this morning. Uh, through the Spirit, Lord, you give me the wisdom and the words to say, and Lord, you would be honoured and glorified uh, through it all. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last Sunday, if you remember, we uh, talked about the fact that God's long-suffering was coming to an end. God's patience with mankind was running out. In verse 3 there, it talks about the fact that God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And we talked about how that's God saying his spirit's going to be uh, removed in the sense of its, its um, influence upon man. Man was resisting, man was hardening their heart, they were ignoring the spirit. And so God says that time is coming to an end where the spirit will work in their hearts. And instead, judgment was coming. Verse 7, as we looked at last week, it says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. God's patience had run out. And God declares that judgment is coming. He says, I will destroy man. He's going to destroy all flesh. In verse 11 to 13, as we just read, we're once again told the reason uh, for this coming judgment. Judgment. Let's read it again. It says, The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so almost the the passage here repeats itself and, and makes sure we understand exactly why judgment is coming. The earth is corrupt. It's filled with violence. Now here we see stress the fact that this is a universal problem. You know, this is not just isolated to a few of you know, mankind. You know, it's not just isolated to the descendants of Cain, and we've talked about that. It's amongst the descendants of Seth as well. It's spread between all mankind. It's a universal problem. And they, they have all turned away from God, they've all corrupted themselves, and thus judgment is coming. And in verse 13, we see Noah informed of this judgment. This is the first time uh, God sort of talks to Noah, and he tells Noah that this is what is coming, the judgment's coming. He says he will destroy man with the earth. That's the end of verse 13 there. It says, 
and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Notice there that God doesn't say he will destroy man from the earth. He says he will destroy man with the earth. You see, the destruction that's coming is a world-destroying cataclysm. It's something that's going to affect the whole earth, not just man or not just a small area. It's going to affect the whole earth. The whole earth is going to experience this judgment that's coming from God. Man will be destroyed with the earth. And verse 17 tells us the means by which this judgment will come. Let's look in verse 17. It says, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Verse 17, the first time we see and understand that this judgment is going to be brought about by a flood. A world-wide flood. This is not just some localized event. Not just some localized flood as the skeptics would have us believe. This is a world-wide flood wiping out all flesh. Now that verse there, it says, Everything that is in the earth shall die. You couldn't get any more you know, uh, descriptive of the fact that everything, the whole of the earth, is going to be affected by this. Everything that is in the earth shall die. Now it's interesting, the word translated flood here is the, is the Hebrew word mabul. And it's only used in the word of God to refer to Noah's flood. It's not used to refer to any other flood. You know, floods are mentioned at other times in the Old Testament, but the word is a different Hebrew word. Okay, it's not this word. And so this word is unique. You know, the, the point is when the Jews heard the word mabul, they knew it was talking about Noah's flood. Okay, it's the Mabul. It's this unique event, something distinct in history, something that has never happened before, Noah, and it's not happened ever since and never will happen. It is distinct. It is unique. In the New Testament, we find a similar thing is true. Whenever Noah's flood is mentioned, the Greek word kataklusmos is used to speak about Noah's flood instead of the usual word for flood. Okay, and Cataclysmos, what does that sound like? Cataclysm. Okay, that's what it's talking about. This world-destroying flood. And so the point is that this is something unique. Okay, and God's word makes that very clear. Makes it very clear this is a unique event that affects the whole world, destroys all flesh. And what this means is that if anyone is going to escape this coming judgment, then God has to act, doesn't he? Okay, if anyone's going to escape this judgment that's coming upon the earth, God must provide the way. God must provide the way of salvation from this, this flood, from this judgment. Now, in verse eight, 8, as we saw last time, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We talked about it. Noah, because of his faith, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is this one who experiences the gracious hand of God in his life. He's the one that God says he's going to use to build the, the ark, and he's the one that's going to be spared from the flood, from this judgment. And because of this, God now gives to Noah the instructions. Okay, He's God's chosen servant because of his faith, and God now gives him these instructions to build the ark. The ark which would be the means of salvation for all who entered in. And so this morning and again this evening, 
I want us to take some time to consider the ark. It's sort of a two-part sermon today because there's no way I could fit it all in one. And so we're going to consider the ark this morning and this evening, this means of salvation provided by God and built by his servant Noah. And in particular this morning, I want us to focus on the fact that the ark was sufficient in size. That really is our point this morning. It it was sufficient in size. Is this microphone echoing for everybody else and making noises? No? Okay. It's just scraping or something up here and it's a bit annoying, but that's all right. If it's just bothering me, that's fine. All right, verse 14, sufficient in size. Let's just read it. It says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. In verse 14, here we have the instructions, the very beginning of these instructions, to build this ark of gopher wood. Now, in order to preserve the human race, and indeed animal life, God now gives Noah the instructions to build this Basically, it's a a huge barge-like structure. That's really what he's building here, and it's called an ark. And the word for ark here, we need to understand, is not the same as the word that we find connected to the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, the word Ark of the Covenant, there that word ark is a totally different Hebrew word. Okay, however, it is the same word used in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 3. Let's just turn over there, Exodus 2 and verse 3. Exodus 2 and verse 3 it says, And when she could no sorry, and when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, and dabbed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's brink. Okay, Exodus chapter 2, of course, this is Moses being hidden by his mother in the uh, the ark that she constructs out of bulrushes. Okay, that word ark there is the same Hebrew word that's used here in Genesis to talk about the ark that Noah builds. Okay? And so basically what it refers to is a, a box or chest. Okay? That's the basic idea of the Hebrew word, a box or chest, uh, rather than a ship. Okay? It's not really talking about a ship. Okay? It's a box or chest that's waterproof. It's designed to go up on the water. Okay? And the box was, this box here in Genesis chapter 6 is perfectly designed by God. That really is... Uh, the wonderful thing when we consider it this morning and this evening, it's designed by God and it's perfectly designed by God for the purpose. Uh, The purpose of saving the occupants from the coming judgments. You know, for the ark to fulfill its purpose, it had to be of sufficient size, didn't it? Okay, If it's going to accomplish the purpose that God intends for it, it has to be of sufficient size to accommodate, to save all who will believe, all who will enter in, and indeed the animals, and indeed the food supplies as well. And of course the wonderful thing is that our God, who is a God of all wisdom and knowledge, makes sure that the ark is, is perfect, doesn't he? Okay? The ark that he instructs Noah to build here is without doubt sufficient in size for the purpose And with that in mind, there's two things I want us to look at this morning, talking about this sufficient in size. I want us to look at, first of all, the dimensions of the ark, the dimensions of the ark. Let's go back to Genesis 6 there. And verse 14 again, it says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms 
shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. So here we have the plans, okay? The plans given by God uh, to Noah for the ark. And of course, there's probably more that God told Noah. We've sort of given a, a brief overview, aren't we? Okay, I'm sure God gave him more instructions than this. But with these instructions, we're given the dimensions of the ark, aren't we? Okay, we're told here in verse 15 in particular, it says, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits. So it's 300 cubits long, it's 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now the, the question is, how big is a cubit? I mean, if we're going to just determine the size of the ark, we need to figure out what a cubit is in modern terms to help us understand this. And this is not an easy question to answer. Okay, this is not something that's easily answered, this idea of a cubit. And the reason is because it's been measured by different lengths, by different cultures, different empires down through the centuries. They've all had a slightly different measurement for the cubit. Uh, the Babylonians, for instance, they had a royal cubit of about 50 centimetres. I'm going to put in centimetres this morning because most of us understand that rather than inches, okay? And so it was about 50 centimetres, the Babylonian one. The Egyptians, they had two measurements for the cubit. They had a long cubit, which was 52 and a half centimetres, and they had a shorter one of 45 centimetres. And so the Egyptians have two. The Jews, they also apparently had two measurements. They had a longer one of 52 centimetres, and the shorter one, or the common cubit, of 44 and a half centimetres. So the point is that throughout history, this measurement cubit has been used, but it's been determined by slightly different lengths depending on the culture, depending on where you are. And so it's difficult to say definitively that this is how big a cubit is. But when you look at those sizes, they're basically all in the same range, okay? 44.5 up to 52.5. That basically is the range of a cubit. Now, if we are ultra-conservative here, okay, and we take the very smallest of these, okay, we take the shortest measurement for the cubits, the Jewish cubit of 44.5 centimetres, and we put that into you know, our measurements here, the ark then is 133.5 metres long, 22.2 metres wide, and 13.4 metres high, if we take the shortest cubit. And so these dimensions make it most likely the largest ship ever built up until the 1800s. That's how big it was. This is a huge, immense vessel that he is told to build here by Almighty God. And with these dimensions, Morris writes this. He says, The total volumetric capacity of the ark was approximately 1,400,000 cubic feet, which is equivalent to the volumetric capacity of 522 standard livestock cars such as are used on the modern railroad. 
since it is known that about 240 sheep can be transported in one stock car, a total of over 125,000 sheep could have been carried in the ark. This sort of gives us an idea of the immense size of the ark. You think about a, a train with all those railway cars behind it, all those stock cars, 522 of them. That's the capacity of the ark here. And you know, to fit 125,000 sheep, that's a lot of volume here. A lot of space on the ark. It's immense in size. Verse 16 tells us that this is then divided into three stories, three decks, if you like. Okay, it says in verse 16, A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. So you've got three stories. Each story is basically about 10 cubits high, which is around 4 metres, somewhere there, high for each deck of the ark. And on each deck, we're told that there's various rooms. Okay, verse 14 tells us that. It says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And so this ark is divided into rooms. On each deck, on each level, there is all these rooms as well. Uh, the word rooms there is actually interesting because it's the Hebrew word for nest. Okay, and so it's actually saying there's these nests in the ark. Okay, basically it's the idea of these pens, okay, dwellings for each of the animals. Okay, that's the idea here, okay, that each of the animals basically had a room, an individual room to nest in, okay, to uh, rest in at night and during the day, that's where they would dwell. You know, with these dimensions, what we see is that immediately we, it's made clear to us that the ark is fit for purpose. Okay, it's fit for the purpose that God intended, the, the purpose of preserving life upon the earth. It was large enough to accommodate comfortably all of the passengers that would enter in. And that's what I want us to focus now, secondly, this morning on the passengers of the ark. I want to spend a a considerable time here talking about the passengers of the ark. Let's look in verse 18. It says, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come into thee, uh, sorry, come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And so here we have listed for us the, the passengers, if you like, the manifest of those who are going to be on board this vessel that uh, Noah has been instructed to, to build, to construct. And obviously there's two groups of passengers here, isn't there? Okay, there is the people, there's Noah okay, and his family, and then of course there's the animals that enter in. And so there has to be sufficient room for all. Okay, we've talked about the immense size of it, but now we need to see whether it's big enough to hold the passengers that God tells Noah to take on board. And so let's start first of all with the people, okay, the people on board the ark. In verse 18 we read of God here establishing a covenant 
with Noah. It says in verse 18, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. God says he's going to establish a covenant with Noah. It's interesting because this is the very first time we see this idea of a covenant in the Word of God. You know, in the Old Testament, the, the idea of a covenant becomes a big part, doesn't it? Okay, you think about Abraham, the, the covenant God makes with him, and you've got Isaac, you've got David, you've got Israel in general. The covenant, God making covenants with his people, is a big part of the Old Testament. And here is the very first mention of that, and it's a covenant with Noah and his family. Um, and God promises Noah here, basically that in response to his obedience, he will establish his covenant with him and his seed. Okay, in response to his faith. Okay, faith is always the foundation with these things, isn't it? Okay, in response to his faith, God says he will establish a covenant with him. And the details of this covenant are elaborated upon in chapter 9. When he comes off the ark, God sort of gives some more details about this. But initially here in chapter 6, verse 18, God covenants here to protect Noah. That's really what he's promising here, isn't it? Okay? It's a covenant to protect Noah and his immediate family from the coming judgment. He will protect them in the ark. He will spare their lives from the judgments when Noah builds the ark. Okay? This is the condition here, isn't it? Okay? If you like, that, the covenant is conditioned upon Noah obeying God. Okay? If Noah just said, okay, thanks, Lord, and didn't build the ark, well, he hasn't obeyed in faith, has he? Okay? There's a condition here. He has to obey God in faith. He had to build the ark as God instructed him to do. And God promised that if he followed those instructions, if he built the ark, <clears throat> God promised to save him and his family, plus their three sons, and their wives. You know, what's interesting is that even here, in verse 18, okay, remember this is just as God is declaring the judgment, okay, and he's giving Noah the plans for the ark, even here, God already knew that only Noah, his wife, three sons and their wives would enter the ark. You notice that? Already. God knew who was going to be on the ark. Verse 18, read it again. <clears throat> it says, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so the point is, God already knew, didn't he? Okay, God already knew that Noah and his wife and, and three sons and their wives would be the only passengers, the only human passengers on board the ark. God knew that in spite of Noah's preaching, okay, over the next century... Okay, that's basically how long he's got. He's preaching the, the, the word of God. He's preaching repents, judgment's coming. We know that from the New Testament, remember? He's a preacher of righteousness. Okay? And so he's preaching through all that time, and he's building the ark, so everyone's seeing it. But in spite of all of that, no one's going to believe. No one's going to accept it. No one's going to repent. They're all going to reject God. God already knew this. God already knew this that this would be the case when he finished the ark, only eight souls would be saved. You know, that's not to say there wasn't enough room. We need to be clear on that, don't we? That doesn't mean that there wasn't enough room on the ark. There was. There was more than enough room for more people to believe and be saved. 
But the hardness of their hearts meant that the men were going to reject God rather than repent and be saved. And so in the end, the ark only really needs to have room for eight, doesn't it? It only needs to have room for eight souls, eight people on board. But of course, they're not the only passengers, are they? Okay, in verse 19 and 20, we're told of the animals who will enter in and be saved. Let's read it again, verse 19. <clears throat> and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And so now we're told of the animals. The animals that God wants Noah to take on board. Okay? Uh, the preservation of animal life. That's really what God's doing here. God makes sure that there's a male and female of each kind brought into the ark. And, you know, God intends for the kinds to survive, doesn't he? Okay? And then to repopulate the earth after the flood. And of course, in addition to this, chapter 7 verse 2 tells us that he had to take seven of each clean animal. Okay, verse 2 of chapter 7. And of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. And then verse 3, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep the seed alive upon the face of all the earth, okay, and so in chapter 7 we're told of these additional groups of seven for the clean animals and the birds, okay, and the clean animals there is the idea of those domesticated animals, the animals they used, okay, and also the animals they sacrificed unto the Lord, okay, if you remember when Noel comes off the ark, what does he do? He sacrifices to God, okay, so the clean animals are for sacrifice as well. But you know, it's clear here with these instructions that God cares for his creatures, isn't it? Okay, God cares for his creation. Okay, the, the creatures that he created in Genesis chapter 1, God in his loving care here is making sure that they are preserved, make sure that their lives are saved from the flood. You know, in verse 20 it's clear that Noah didn't have to do anything to get the animals to come. Okay, they came on their own. Verse 20 it says, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. Shall come unto thee. They, they're going to come of their own accord. Why? Because God's going to ensure that they do. And, you know, we could talk about why did they come and, you know, what was the, uh, the um, thing that caused them to do this. And Morris had a good point. You know, animals migrate all the time you know, when they see danger coming and things like that. And so, you know, this is God enacting that, making sure they migrate to the ark at the right time to escape the judgments. But the point is, Noah didn't have to go out hunting and trapping these animals, did he? He didn't have to go looking for them. He did his job, built the ark. The animals came when God called. You know, Wearsby writes this, he says, The birds, beasts, and creeping things knew their creator's voice and obeyed him. But the people made in the image of God, refused to heed God's call. That's truly sad, isn't it? When you think about it. When you think about the fact that out of the billions of people on the earth, remember we talked about how the, the population has exploded, okay? You know, because of the long lives, because they're having children right throughout their lives, the population 
has exploded. There's billions upon the earth. And out of all of them, only eight accept God. Only eight believe his word and are saved. And yet the animals, they obey their creator. They listen and they come at the call of his, his command. That truly is a sad state, isn't it? It's an indictment upon the state of the world in Noah's day. You know, when we consider the number of animals that were called to come here and the size of the ark, once again we see the wisdom of God here in its design. Most land animals are small. Okay, now, you know, the question always is thrown up, what about the elephant, what about dinosaurs? Well, of course they would have been infants, they would have been small ones, okay? They're not taking their full grown, okay, on the ark, okay? That's just logical, okay? So we'll move past that, okay? But most of the animals are small, okay? And therefore there's plenty of room for them on board the ark. And, and so let's talk about how many animals are we talking about here? How many animals actually needed to be taken on board the ark when Noah built the ark here. I mean, this is one of the things that the, the unsafe scoff at, isn't it? You know, how did he feed all those animals? It's impossible. Let's talk about the amount of animals on board. And in relation to that, Morris writes this. He says, authorities estimate that there is less than 18,000 species of mammals, birds, reptiles, and amphibians living in the world today. This number might be doubled to allow for known extinct land animals. <clears throat> Allowing them for two of each species, there might have been a total of about 72,000 animals on board. Say 75,000 to allow for five extra animals in each clean species. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so Morris makes the estimation, okay, he's talking about species here. He says there's about 18,000 species of animals. And he says if we double that and we add extra for the, the clean animals, 75,000, okay? And he's being generous here, okay, making this estimation. Now, earlier on, we said the ark was large enough to hold 125,000 sheep. But since the average size of an animal is actually smaller than a sheep, there's plenty of room, isn't there? Okay, the ark was more than sufficient to accommodate 75,000 animals on board. In fact, with those numbers, you've only filled it to 60% 60, 60 capacity. You've got 40% left. That's 40% for Noah and his family and for food supplies. There's plenty of space. But the reality is that these numbers are an overestimation by a long way. <clears throat> these numbers are really generous. And Morris even it says that. He goes on, he writes, actually, it would have been far less than this. Since the biblical kind is probably considerably broader than that of the arbitrary species category of modern biology. And so he's used the species category, but he says biblical kind in Genesis chapter 1 is a far smaller number. Okay, taking the kinds rather than the species. And recent research from Answers in Genesis, and they're really good on these things, aren't they? <clears throat> Research by Anson Genesis would agree that the number of animals taken on board was far less than this. You see, Noah didn't take every species. Noah took every kind. Okay, let's look in verse 20 again. It says, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, and of creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Okay, it's the kinds that are talked about here. And we talked about this in Genesis chapter 1, okay? The kind, okay, from which every subspecies came, okay? 
this is the genetic pool and they came from them. And so within each kind, you may have a number of different species represented. You know, for instance, you know, you think about dogs. You've got coyotes, you've got wolves, you've got dingoes, you've got the domestic dog and all the different breeds, all the different types. But they all can interbreed. And so what that tells us is that they are of the same kind. They're one kind. And so all that Noah needed to take on the ark was one kind. Okay, he needed to take two members of the dog kind. That's all he needed. He didn't need all the subcategories. He needed the two, which had the genetic profile for every subspecies thereafter. And the same is true right across the animal kingdom. There is ones that get interbreed, and what it tells us is they came from one source. They are one kind. Okay, and the point is that the number of kinds needed to be taken on the ark from which all of the species that we have on the earth today could have originated from is far less than 18,000. Way less. Michael Belknap and Tim Chafee from Answers in Genesis, they write this. Based on initial projections, the Ark Encounter team estimates that there were around 1,400 animal kinds on the Ark. It is anticipated that future research may reduce that number even further. That's a massive change, isn't it? From 18,000 right down to 1,400 kinds. That's all. So if you double that and you add a few extra for the clean animals, you're basically 7,000 or below. That's all that Noah needed on the ark. And when you start talking about that, even though 75,000 can fit, when you start talking about 7,000, it becomes really easy to understand how this worked, isn't it? Really easy to understand how these animals all fit and how they all had their own nest, their own pen within the ark. There's plenty of room on the ark for the animals. You see, the point is that this is not something impossible. This is not a a, a fairy tale. This is something that is real. It's a reality. The the ark that Noah was told to build is perfectly dimensioned. It's perfectly uh, in length and size to fit all of these animals comfortably and fit Noah and fit all of the food supplies. Now, verse 21 talks about the food supplies. It says, uh, And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten. And thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And so he's taken all these food supplies as well. And so the point is, when you add it all up, there is plenty of room, isn't there? There is plenty of room on the ark. Indeed, it's not squishy. There's room to spread out. There's room for them to exercise. There's room for them to walk around. There's plenty of room on the ark. See, the point is, as I said, our emphasis this morning, the ark was sufficient in size to save all who entered in from the coming judgment. You know, as we consider the ark this morning, we consider the fact that it was sufficient in size. You know, we can't help but see a parallel with the Lord Jesus Christ, can you? Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for all. Just like the ark, okay? The ark is a wonderful picture of salvation in the Old Testament. You know, Genesis 6 here is the day of God's judgment is fast approaching. God instructs his servants to build an ark that is sufficient to save all mankind, okay, all who would enter in, sufficient, and sufficient to save the animal life. And you know, there's only one way to escape the coming judgment, isn't there? There's one way, the ark. There's only one way of salvation, to enter in to the ark. But you know, God made sure that that one way was sufficient for all. You know, likewise, even today, There is one way 
to escape the judgment that's coming. There's one way of salvation, and that's by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ there on the cross. And you know, the wonderful truth is that just like the ark was sufficient for all, Christ's sacrifice there on the cross is sufficient for all. There's room for all in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his sacrifice, as we'll talk about tonight, to be covered by his blood. There is room for all to be saved. In John 6, verse 37, Christ declares this. He says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He says, All who come will be saved. I won't cast anyone out. You see, Christ won't turn anyone away. Why? Because there's room for all who will come to him in faith. You know, John 3.16, that verse, we all love and know well. For God's love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever, everybody, is able to be saved because of Christ. You see, it's a wonderful truth that's reflected here in the Old Testament with the ark, the first method of salvation, if you like, okay, the ark. To save mankind, it's a wonderful picture of Christ and the fact that he is sufficient for all. You see, in him we can escape the judgment that is coming, the judgment of hell. All we have to do is accept him by faith. And we're going to talk about that more this evening as we consider more about the ark and how it's a picture of Christ. But let's close this morning in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for... Uh, the, the ark, Lord, and we, we thank you, Lord, for the truth that, Lord, it was sufficient in size. Lord, you are a God of all wisdom and knowledge. And, Lord, it shouldn't surprise us that something you designed is, is so perfectly designed, uh, so perfectly uh, matched for the purpose. And, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that likewise in Christ we have a perfect uh, sacrifice who is sufficient for all. And, Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. And, Lord, if there's anybody here or watching today who doesn't know you as the Savior, may they realize, Lord, that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for them. And all they have to do to be saved is to enter in by faith. Lord, may you bless as we close and bless uh, this evening, Lord, as we continue our study in the ark, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.